verses 11 to 15 this morning. And if you're looking for a sermon title, simply Fullness in Christ. Fullness in Christ. So if you were with us last week, you'll recognize that this is a little bit of a continuation of what we covered last week, and that's because, of course, we're following the flow of Paul's thought. If you're a guest with us this morning, then you should know that we believe that the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, are the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God, uh, inerrant in their original autographs. And so we take this as the revelation of God. We believe Paul was a true eyewitness um, that, that he is giving us true testimony about who Jesus is, and that if we want to know who the true Jesus is, we need to hold fast to the words of the true eyewitnesses, that being, of course, the Apostle Paul and other apostles. And so we walk through the scriptures verse by verse, uh, sometimes word by word. We have been walking through the book of Colossians for some, I don't know, like 11, 12 weeks now, and I don't know how long it's going to take us to get through us. We'll just get there when we get there. Um, got no plan for this kind of stuff. We're going to do 11 to 15. I almost just did 11 and 12 this week. So we're making progress. There's, uh, there's some good news for you. I'm going to start us off by reading this out loud for us, and then we'll jump in. Colossians 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 15, but I'm going to start reading in verse 8 down to 15, just so that we get the context from what we covered last week. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father, help us now. Send your spirit to help us now. We need illumination. We need to have the light bulbs turned on to understand what this says. Lord, you know that this is a notoriously difficult text. And God, I feel so absolutely inadequate. And so God, I just pray that your spirit will help. That, that as we dive in and, and seek to discern the meaning, that you would bring that true meaning to the surface. And Lord, that your spirit would apply it to our hearts. 
God, that, that whatever would uh, need to be said to each individual heart in this room, that it would be said, Lord, that you would penetrate hearts by your spirit this morning, even through this notoriously difficult text. This is a glorious text. And I just pray that that would become evident to us, that we would learn to love the truth that is here as we hold fast to it in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm convinced that the two words that we hear more often than any other two words in the Scoggin home are the words, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. If you don't know how kids work, kids tend to have insatiable appetites. In fact, we often say that our kids are like bottomless pits, and that certainly is what it feels like. They're always hungry. And the good news is that that's nothing to worry about with children. You would expect that children with their growing bodies and their constant energy output from running this way and that way, you would expect that they would be hungry. They need food in order to fuel the growth that's going on within their little bodies. But there are various eating disorders that, that would give reason for more concern, especially when they're seen in adults. And some of those are related to real medical complications that cause a person to not be able to physically detect when they're full. There are medical complications that people can have where they feel constantly hungry. Many of these are characterized as something that's called hyperphagia, which is a feeling of constant, extreme, insatiable hunger. Now, you may know a thing or two about the existence of these different disorders, but You may not know this, my friends. There is a spiritual version of hyperphagia as well. And this spiritual version of always feeling like you're hungry when you in fact are not is a threat to Christians everywhere. In our faith, we're going to be tempted at times to think that Christ is not enough for us. We're going to believe the lie that we are indeed not full when we in fact have been filled with his fullness. And believing that lie will always inevitably lead, at least in the very best, to an unhealthy version of Christianity, and at worst, it will lead to the destruction of human souls. Now last week, we saw Paul continue to make a strong appeal to the Christians in Colossae to remember Christ is all-sufficient. He's all that you need. You don't need anything above and beyond or beneath Christ. Christ is everything. He is all in all. He fills you with his fullness. He fills you completely. He completes every spiritual need that any person in this world could ever have. He is, in fact, the God who created you. So, of course, he can fill and meet your every need. If the Colossians have received Christ, Paul has made this clear. They have received fullness. And so he tells them, walk in him. Walk in that Christ who has filled you completely. And you walk in him. How, my church? By being rooted. By being built up in him. By being established in the faith. And y'all remember what it is to be established in the faith? Just as you were taught. You need to be established in what God has taught in the apostolic teaching and in the Old Testament. 
You need to know your Bibles, be established in the truth of the gospel, and therefore abound in thanksgiving always as you give praise to God for what he has accomplished for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But this church had also better know, just as we ought to better know, church, that there are enemies of God who are going to try and take us captive once again. That there are enemies who are going to try to convince Christians that Jesus is not enough. Just as in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were literally surrounded by every fruit that was good to eat. Yet Satan used one tree, which God said, do not eat of that one, to convince the man and woman God's holding out on you. You need more than what God has revealed. You need more than what God has provided. There's something better for you out there than the wisdom of God in his word. And friends, that was a lie. Man should seek his own knowledge, Satan would tell you. Man should seek his own meaning. Man should seek his own fulfillment outside of what God has clearly revealed to us, outside of God's clear commands to them. That's where the good stuff is. That's the lie that Satan will tell. That's the lie that false teachers will seek to infiltrate the church to tell. You need something more than Jesus. And man has been captivated by this way of living ever since Adam and Eve fell into it in the Garden of Eden. We saw last week that Paul calls this philosophy. He calls it philosophy there in chapter 2, verse 8, which doesn't imply that Christians should never engage in what we would call the discipline of philosophy today, but it does imply that Christians should reject any system of thought that is fundamentally committed to finding ultimate meaning and truth outside of God's certain revelation, which comes to us in his word, which is both, of course, Christ himself and the scriptures with God has get, which God has given us to, to us in the Bible. The, the desire of mankind, my friends, is always going to be look for revelation beyond and outside of what God has already provided. And inevitably, that desire leads not to further revelation that is in line and in accord with the truth of Christ, but to a revelation that defers out or detracts away from the truth of Christ. So we've got to watch out. That's what we saw last week. And now in our Bibles, in this revelation that God has given us, Paul reminds us this morning that in Christ we have completeness. In Christ we have fullness. We have everything that we need in Jesus and, and we need nothing more and nothing beyond him. Jesus Christ, Paul showed us, is God. He is the one who made us. He is our creator. And in him and in him alone forevermore, Paul showed us the fullness of deity dwells. But out of Jesus' overflowing, life-giving fullness, he fills us completely as his creation. As we trust him, he fills us. In short, basically what Paul is going to show us this morning is how Jesus does this. How is it that he fills us with everything we need? How is it that we have all that we need in him? This morning, we're going to see the fullness, my friends, of our salvation in Christ. And as we work through this text, we'll see that in Jesus, we have first full freedom. And then second, we'll see that in Jesus, we have full forgiveness. 
And then third, we'll see that in Jesus, we have full fortitude. So let's jump in. First, full freedom. Look with me at Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Paul writes, in him, yes, that's in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. All right, church. We love our Bibles, right? Amen? Yes? We love them? So we're going to get into them. We're going to study them this morning. So have your Bibles open, and we're going to explore some glorious truths. In these verses, Paul uses a couple of powerful pictures to teach us a glorious truth. And that truth is that in Christ, the Christian has full freedom. In other words, in him, we have full salvation. In Jesus, we have full deliverance. We need to work through the details of this text in order to see these truths come out. So we're going to begin by understanding what this circumcision is to which Paul refers Now, circumcision, you may know if you're familiar with your Bible, first comes into the storyline of Scripture with Abraham. Abraham was a pagan man who God elected to be the the father of a chosen people who, who would be exclusively devoted to God's purposes in the world. When God calls Abraham, what we see in the storyline of Scripture is Abraham responds with faith. He trusts God, he trusts God's promises that that God is going to make him indeed into a great nation through which all of the nations in the world would be blessed. He trusts God, he follows God, he obeys God. And what we see is that after Abraham's faithful response, God makes what's called a covenant with him, an agreement, an arrangement between two parties. That's what a covenant is. He makes a covenant with Abraham, which includes a sign that should mark all who would be included in the covenant. And that sign, my friends, was circumcision. Now, circumcision was the removal of a portion of flesh from the male organ. And what that signified in the ancient Near East is that a person was set apart and devoted to the service of Yahweh as king priests. You know, it's interesting that circumcision didn't begin, it seems, in the Bible, but it seems like it was something that was practiced not just in the scriptures, but also in cultures beyond the scriptures as well. We actually have records of circumcision being practiced in places like Egypt, which of course was a world power, and many other places in the ancient Near East as well. But in pagan contexts, the only people to whom circumcision was administered were the people who were the king's closest priests and servants. So so it was a, a way of physically showing that a person was to be set apart In a unique, special way, this person, of all the people out there, is devoted to the king as a priest sort of a figure who will bring about the purposes of the king in the king's land. It was a way of distinguishing who belongs to the king in this unique, special way and who does not. Now, here's what's interesting about Israel compared to all the other nations of the world who did practice circumcision. Israel is different because... It's not just to identify a few special people who are going to receive this sign of circumcision. You're not just going to have a few king priests in the nation of Israel. No, Israel is to be a nation where every man 
as the head of his home, and thus every home is fully devoted to Yahweh. But if you know your Bible, you know that that just didn't turn out to be the case, did it? The sign of circumcision, which was administered to all Jews, all Jewish men, it did not accurately signify what God's chosen people were called to be. And we actually see this as a development in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Many of you are going to be familiar with this passage, and you should be, because this is a vitally important passage in the Bible. Because in it, Moses begins to lay out God's vision for what Israel as the chosen people on earth are supposed to be. Okay, so so here's the vision of what Israel is supposed to be. Look with me in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, that's Yahweh, his unique covenantal name, our God. He says, Yahweh is one. It's monotheism, friends. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, you see what's going on here? God's people should be a people who are devoted to the Lord with all of their heart, soul, and might. Moses, in this text, leads by talking about the heart intentionally here. Because the heart is the operational center of the person in a Jewish way of thinking. It's the control center for the human being. So everything in the Jewish way of thinking proceeds from the heart. Our thoughts are from our heart. Our emotions are from our heart. Our wills are commanded by our heart. Maybe some of you have seen the animated movie Inside Out. I don't always recommend Disney movies, but I happen to like this one. But Inside Out is a movie that kind of depicts this internal reality within this person and all these different uh, personality kind of manifestations like anger and sadness are people within the story. And they all live within this control center within the person. And each of them kind of makes different you know, personality traits come out at different points in time. That's kind of the Jewish understanding of the heart. It's the control center, which all your thoughts, all your emotions, and all your deeds come out of. So God's true people are a people then who love God first and foremost from the heart. At least that's where they were supposed to be. Their heart was to be centered on and governed how? By devotion to the word of God. You see that? Know his word. Write it everywhere. Talk about it everywhere. Love the truth that's been given to you in the Torah and eventually in the prophets and eventually through the apostles. Love that deeply. That is the center of everything that you ought to hold dear within your heart as a person of God. 
That's what you see happening here. So out of this vision for God's people to be this sort of love from the heart, the truth of God kind of a people, look at uh, how this vision works itself out in Deuteronomy 10, verse 6. Flip over a few pages. Deuteronomy 10. Sorry, I said verse 6. We're going to read verse 14 to 17. So this is what Moses is saying. If you are a people who love God from the heart this way, this is just going to be the result. Deuteronomy 10, 14 to 17. Behold, the Lord your God, or behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. By the way, we love because he first loved us. It's not just a New Testament idea. Now look at verse 16. This is where I need you to hone in. Moses commands the people, given that they're supposed to be this people who are fully devoted to Yahweh from the heart, Ruled by his word, he commands them, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Okay, did you notice the command for God's people to circumcise what? the foreskin of their hearts. Okay, so so here's what we begin to see here. Under the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant, the sign of circumcision, the sign of cutting off part of the male organ did not always accurately represent what it was meant to signify. Because it was an outward sign, at least it was meant to be an outward sign of an inward reality. So it would appear early on. But that that wasn't always the case because God's people were often stubborn and rebellious. They didn't live in accord with the sign. Their hearts weren't always circumcised unto the Lord, devoted to him fully for his purposes. In fact, even by the end of the book of Deuteronomy and the progressive unfolding revelation of God, Moses is already beginning to communicate the need for a work of God upon the hearts of these men and women because they apparently cannot circumcise their own hearts. So Moses gives them a command, as God's word often does, that these people cannot keep. They can't circumcise their own hearts. Deuteronomy 10 gives this command that is impossible for men and women to measure up to. So look at how this works itself out. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30. Yes, we're going to keep those Bibles moving today. Deuteronomy 30. And we're going to look at 5 and 6. But but I just want you to know that what's happening in the context of these verses is in a prophetic manner, Moses is already predicting here the exile that's going to come upon God's people as a result of their disobedience to the covenant. Moses is starting to see by the end of his life, this is a disobedient people. This is a people with uncircumcised hearts, and that's going to lead to judgment and exile. Eventually, God's curses are going to come down upon this people because they are not meeting the arrangement necessary of the covenant agreement. They're breaking covenant again and again. 
But Moses is also predicting this day when God is graciously going to return his people out of exile. He's already foreseeing they're going to go into exile and God's going to bring them out of exile. Look at Deuteronomy 30, verses 5 and 6. It says, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed. This is predicting the return from exile. That you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And look at this. This is verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Do you see how God's revelation is progressively revealing the manner through which he will save his people. It begins with circumcise your hearts. We can't do that. So it progresses to, there's a day coming when God will circumcise the hearts of his people. There's development. The the people of God collectively will fail. They will fail as a whole people to circumcise their hearts. Yes, there will be some within Israel who will have their hearts circumcised, but not all Israel is going to be true Israel because there's going to be a whole bunch of people who have received the physical sign of circumcision who do not have circumcised hearts. And so there is beginning in Deuteronomy to be an anticipation of a day when God will circumcise the hearts of all of his people. Deuteronomy is beginning to develop a theme that actually becomes a lot more clear in the prophets, especially the prophet Jeremiah, who, by the way, is considered to be the Deuteronomic prophet. He loved Deuteronomy, and he writes in many ways that give uh, allusions to the book of Deuteronomy. But Jeremiah, writing during the exile, by the way, which Moses predicted would happen as a result of the curses coming upon the people for their covenant disobedience, Jeremiah predicts that there's going to be a day There's going to be a future point when God delivers his people back from exile. But then he also says there's going to be a day beyond that when God is going to do an even greater work where it's not only that people return into the land, it's that every person in the covenant has a circumcised heart. And we don't have time to go look at that together, but if you want to go look at that, you can look at Jeremiah 32 and just reflect on it. But you also Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah 9. Follow the progression of thought throughout Jeremiah. Now, here's what you need to know, and here's why you need to know all that. Paul always, Paul always had the Old Testament in mind when he wrote. Okay, the Apostle Paul was an Old Testament scholar. So you can't know what Paul is saying unless you know what the Old Testament says, because he is an Old Testament guy. And what he sees is that Jesus, friends, Jesus in his life, death, Resurrection is the one who has brought into the world this thing which the prophets have foretold. Paul sees that in Jesus, God's community is no longer made up of a mixture of some who have circumcised hearts and others who do not have circumcised hearts. No, in Christ, every heart of every person in the community of God is devoted from the deepest parts of our being to God. We love him from the heart. And that devotion doesn't come from our personal performance. 
The devotion doesn't come, we see, from our covenant keeping. It doesn't come because we are able again and again to circumcise our own hearts in the way that we need to. No, no, no. We couldn't circumcise our own hearts. We only receive hearts that love God in this way through the powerful work of Jesus Christ who came to set his people free from our wicked and wretched hearts. That's the connection that the Apostle Paul is making for us here. Okay, look at what the text says. In him also you were circumcised. Okay, stop right there. That's a passive verb, okay? Now, my good FPC Provo people who have been hearing a lot about passive verbs lately, who does the action in a passive verb? Is it us? No, it would be an active verb if we were the one doing the action. We passively receive the action of God. God is circumcising the hearts here. So God is the one doing the action. Paul clearly Paul clearly has the circumcision of the heart in mind here. He's not even talking about physical circumcision anymore. He's talking about this greater fulfillment of the spiritual circumcision of the heart. And God is the one who does that work. And we see that, that further in the next phrase, it says, with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, this work of heart change is something we cannot do ourselves, and Paul couldn't make it any more clear if he wanted to try to. It's not made with human hands, this kind of circumcision. Now, I think that this is actually an allusion even to the idolatry that the people were being tempted to fall into because what is it that is made with human hands throughout the Old Testament? Idols. So, so if you want to follow idols, then think that you can circumcise your own heart and try to come up with ways to do it. That is the nature of idolatry, religion that is man-made, religion that runs on the backs of human hands, religion that tells you it's what you do, it's what you accomplish, it's how you progress, is the pure form of idolatry which Paul writes about here. The true religion of the Bible is a religion in which God does the action to circumcise the hearts of all who will be obedient to him. This isn't a man-made, man-done thing. This is God made and God done. You got to realize religion that comes from man, friends, is religion that always seeks to give man the ultimate credit. It says that your devotion to God, your commitment to him is ultimately the result of your own activity. So do, 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 do. The gospel is so radically opposite to that. The gospel tells a very different story. Now, look at how this circumcision of our hearts is accomplished. Paul goes on and writes, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, so, so can we just agree at this point Maybe you'll have to take my word for it because I'm going to use some theological lingo here. The circumcision of the heart is a reference to regeneration. Okay? Paul, Paul is, is not even trying to associate with the physical sign anymore at this point. What he's concerned with is the regeneration of the hearts of all those who are truly following God. So how then do we receive this regeneration? How is it that we are freed from sin and death 
How is it that we are delivered, saved, rescued out of the domain of darkness? Paul makes it abundantly clear. It's not by your religious works, but by Christ's work. That is so clear here. Turns out that circumcision is fulfilled, not in us continuing its practice, but you see what Paul says here? Circumcision is fulfilled in the death of Christ himself. This is the idea that the Apostle Paul is getting at. You want to know how people are changed from the old man that loves sin, that loves self, that exalts self, that thinks that the world revolves around them? How are people changed from that old man to a new man whose heart is truly devoted internally to God? It's by what Christ accomplished on the cross. Okay, in former circumcision, a piece of flesh is cut off to symbolize that a person is devoted to God. What Paul is saying, friends, is that at the cross, Christ's entire body was cut off, so to speak. His whole body was circumcised so that all who were brought into him by faith would be devoted to God's purposes. Okay, so, so do you realize, dear friend, that if you're in Christ today, you are devoted to him as a result of what he accomplished there at the cross through his ultimate bodily circumcision and not as a result of any religious duty that you have ever performed nor ever could perform in your life. The, the removal of the body of flesh here that Paul is talking about in us is the removal of the old man. So this is saying that Christ in his death performed the act that causes every Christian to be born again and made new. So in him, by way of his death, by way of him sacrificing his body, we are made new. Friends, in Christ, you're a new creation. That is what heart circumcision refers to. This is a reference to regeneration. Okay, regeneration of your heart, being born again, being made new. That is the typological fulfillment of circumcision. It's not baptism. Okay, baptism is not the fulfillment of circumcision. Regeneration is the fulfillment of circumcision. That's what Paul has in mind here. Now, now baptism testifies to that inner reality of circumcision, but it is not the actual fulfillment of the thing. So, so Paul is saying that Christ is the way that we are converted. He is the means of our conversion. We don't convert ourselves. We are converted by Christ. Jesus came into the world, friends, to actually save us. Okay? He, he didn't come to potentially save his people. He came to definitely save us. And he saves us ultimately from ourselves. Were we left to ourselves we would continue relying on religion made by our own hands. Well, we would think that it's up to us in our own strength to cut away our old self as our only hope of salvation. But here Paul makes it so clear for us that in Christ, the old self, the old you, has been completely cut away. You've been made new by him through his death. But not only through his death. And that's the imagery that Paul gets to next in verse 12. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. How? Through works? Through faith. And the powerful work that you did? 
working of God who raised him from the dead. Christ kills the old man in us, but he also raises us with Christ to new life. So, so here Paul is elaborating on the circumcision performed in our hearts by means of Christ's death on the cross. He's saying that heart circumcision occurs, which then enables faith. Okay, it's heart circumcision, regeneration, which enables faith, and it's through faith, or trust in Christ, by the way, as the sole means of salvation. That's what it means. Through faith, we are baptized or immersed into Christ. You see that? We are joined to him. So follow Paul's line of thinking. Heart circumcision is when God turns the light bulb on and regenerates your heart. When he regenerates your heart, you immediately respond in faith. Through faith, you then are baptized. That's Paul's point. So the baptism here is not talking primarily about physical baptism in water. It's talking about spiritual baptism. It's talking about our union with Christ. You are made alive. You are then enabled to believe. And through faith, you're united to him, baptized into him, immersed into him. He becomes your life. He becomes your all. He becomes your everything. That's the point that's being made here. And this, by the way, is a reason why it is absolutely wrong to ever consider that baptism in some way can save you. Paul makes that abundantly clear, even just here in this text. It's regeneration, and then through faith, the baptism into Christ. And the baptism we receive of water signifies the baptism that we have received of of being united to him in his death, burial, resurrection. So the baptism is spiritual here. It's referring to our union with Christ. As you probably know, this spiritual baptism came to take on the early church's indicating mark of those who were in the New Covenant. New Covenant members are not a mixture of circumcised and uncircumcised anymore. That was the reality under the Old Testament covenants. But in the New Covenant, every member, every member of the covenant community ought to be even physically baptized as a sign of what God has objectively done in the heart through regeneration. Heart surgery happens first, then faith in Christ, and then baptism into him. And then we are physically baptized as an outward sign of an inward new covenant reality. In baptism, we testify to the world, Jesus changed my heart. Jesus changed my life. And it was through faith in him alone. Okay, that's a lot of theology coming down the pipe at you. I just got to ask, is this you this morning, friends? Can you identify with what Paul is saying is a true reality for every person who is actually in the true covenant of God? Has your heart been changed? Not by any work that you've done through faith, in Christ's work, through faith in the powerful work of God who raised Christ, is your whole salvation wrapped up in an identification of who Jesus is and of what he has accomplished for you? Or are you in any way whatsoever thinking that it is dependent upon you and your performance and your deeds? If you, if you are in that boat, I just want to 
tell you, that's idolatry. But here's the good news. Believe in Jesus. Have faith in him. And thus be united to him. And filled with the fullness of life that comes in him alone. And here's the amazing thing. When you do that, the next thing you're going to find is full forgiveness. Full forgiveness. Look with me, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Paul writes, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Man, these two verses are shocking. These two verses are stunning. They're they're surprising even. Paul reminds the church to further consider the result of all that he has just now said. You were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, Paul uses this imagery often because it rightly identifies our spiritual condition apart from Christ. Before Christ, we are dead, friends. That means that we were absolutely unresponsive and unable to respond to the truth of God. That's what it means to be dead. I don't know about you, but I've been to a few funerals in my day. And I've been to even a few open casket funerals in my life. And of course, in an open casket funeral, the person who is dead is laying in the casket open before the whole congregation. And you know what happens at the end of every single one of those funerals that I've been to? The person who's officiating the funeral says, a benediction. He says, you are dismissed. You may exit through the doors in the back. And every single person in the room responds, except for one guy, the person who's dead. Because dead people don't respond. That's Paul's whole point. You were dead in your spiritual condition before Christ made you alive. Absolutely dead. You were dead in your sins. That's what Paul means by the uncircumcision of the flesh. Okay, Remember that that's a parallel to the sinful old man. That's what the uncircumcision of the flesh is. It's that sinful part of us that needs to be cut off and done away with. That's what we are dead in. Dead in our sins. Dead in our self-consumption. Dead in our false philosophy. Dead in our human way of thinking. Dead in our own belief that we can do enough and be enough and measure up to whatever standard that we want to pretend like God has. We refuse to submit to the truth of God. We refuse to worship the one and only true God. We refuse to see Jesus for who he so clearly says he is. We're dead in our trespasses. Dead in our sins. In the uncircumcision. In the old man. So how does God rescue us from that state? Look at it. Paul goes on to write, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Here's Paul's idea, church. 
our trespasses held us in a sort of bondage. Well, we were dead in our trespasses. And the idea that Paul is getting at is that we could not do anything to advance a reason for our own forgiveness. We actually stood before the holy God justly condemned, accused, deserving of eternal death, and there was nothing that we could do. But God himself has forgiven us, listen to this, of all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Okay, friends, that record of debt that Paul's talking about there in the Greco-Roman context, that, that was like an IOU. So the imagery is that as we continue to trespass or violate God's perfect righteous law, our sin debt continues to increase. You can literally imagine a piece of paper that just goes on almost for all eternity with a record of every single trespass that you have ever committed. There is an unending debt that we have accrued as a result of our disobedience to God's perfect, holy, righteous law. Okay, I, I saw a clip the other day from the Dave Ramsey show. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Dave Ramsey show, but if you're not familiar with our boy Dave Ramsey, some people have agreements with him, some people don't, it's whatever, but what you need to know is that he's a financial advisor, and he primarily focuses on helping people get out of debt. So one guy calls into the show for help, and this guy had amassed $430,000 in student loans. And he'd gone that much into debt because he was going to medical school. And obviously he planned to graduate from medical school and to get a job as a physician where he would be making big money, where he could pay this thing off in just a few years. But unfortunately, he gets a couple of years into medical school and fails his boards multiple times. So eventually he is forced to withdraw from school. And he has nothing more than an undergraduate degree in biology. So he goes and gets a job as a high school biology teacher, which you know, my friends, does not pay hardly anything. So here's this guy calling into the Dave Ramsey show saying, I have $430,000 of debt in student loans, and I am a high school biology teacher. And Dave Ramsey doesn't seem to get stumped very often when it comes to coming up with solutions to help people get out of debt. But this one got him. There's literally no way that this guy, who has amassed such a massive debt, in addition to all the other living expenses that he has, could ever pay off that debt on the, on the kind of uh, money he's making as a high school biology teacher. And friends, that's the situation that Paul is trying to say every single one of us are in when we are dead in our trespasses. We have amassed such an immense debt that we can never repay. And every moment that we are breathing, that debt becomes greater. That's the imagery. Every time you lie, or maybe just embellish the truth a little bit to make yourself look better, your debt increases. Every time you gossip, speaking negatively about someone behind their back, that's more debt. Every time you covet, 
which is to desire something that belongs to someone else, whether that be physical objects or probably more often or more commonly their life circumstances. Every time you covet someone else, more debt. Every time that you lust, every time you linger on an image, every time you glance in a direction that you shouldn't glance and linger and look, more debt. Every time that you greedily hold on to your money, amassing wealth out of a heart that desires to grow rich rather than to be as generous as you can be, more debt. Every time you indulge in anything more than you should, whether it be food or entertainment, whatever you're tempted to be a glutton towards, every time you fall into that, more debt. Every time you neglect your responsibilities of the work that you ought to do because you're feeling slothful and lazy, more debt. Friends, your anger adds debt. Your jealousy adds debt. Your hatred adds debt. Your vanity adds debt. Your cheating adds debt. Your disobedience to your parents adds debt. Day after day, moment after moment, more debt and more debt gets added to the bill that you owe to the holy and righteous God on the last day. And the realization of the spiritual debt that we owe as a result of our sins should lead us to the point of desperation that that man who called into the Ramsey show, weeping, asking, help me get rid of my debt, it should lead us to that kind of response. And would you believe me if I were to tell you that God himself sent his one and only son into the world to cancel all of it. Our debt stood against us. The legal demands were being made. The creditors were knocking on the door. The debt had to be paid. It was due and overdue. They wouldn't stop calling. They wouldn't stop coming. What are we going to do? We don't have a dime to our name. So God sent Jesus, his son, the perfect one, filled with all the riches of God, into the world to pay the debt that we owed so that our debt could be canceled. Friends, look at what it says. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay, Paul is saying that in Christ, in the true Christ, who Paul has been preaching, whom all must believe in in order to have any confidence of true salvation, but in him there is full forgiveness. And our forgiveness comes by way of Christ's death on the cross. This he set aside. Nailing it where? To the cross. Not to your heart. Not to your list of things to do and fix and get ready for the day to come. To the cross. You know, it was a common practice for Roman soldiers to nail a criminal's conviction to the cross on which the criminal hung. So if somebody was a thief and they were nailed to the cross, then above them would be nailed the word thief. And if a murderer was nailed to the cross, then above that murderer would be a sign that said, murderer. So Paul is saying that our sins are forgiven, not because they were just wiped away with and zeroed out and done away with because God is a big loving God who doesn't have to punish anybody if he doesn't want to. No, what he's saying is your sin was punished. The punishment that was due to us 
for our sins was placed upon Jesus on the cross where he was regarded as a sinner. On his cross was nailed all of your sins and he died to suffer the eternal wrath of God which was due to you so that you can be forgiven. Friends, can you believe that that's true? That's amazing. There's one commentator who notes that this phrase canceled literally means to cause something to cease by obliterating any evidence. Okay, so, so if you're in Christ by faith, if you are trusting in him alone for your salvation, this means that one day when you find yourself standing before the holy righteous God, he's not going to bring one iota of evidence against you. It's canceled. Your debt has been paid for. You are fully and completely forgiven. You will get nothing but a declaration of one who has been considered not guilty. And that's, be, that's all because of what Jesus has done. He has paid the price for you to be forgiven. And so, yes, my friend, that means that Jesus extends forgiveness to all who are in him forever. Everything you've done, everything is forgiven. Your past sins and your future sins have already been paid for. This is why Christians sing songs that say things like, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And knowing this, friends, leads us to live with fortitude. Full fortitude. The third benefit of being in Christ. Now, fortitude is strength to courageously endure adversity and temptation. That's what fortitude is. And the, the source of our fortitude is what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection. Look with me, Colossians 2.15. Colossians 2.15. Paul writes, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Okay, so, so Paul wants Christians everywhere to know the cosmic impact of Christ's accomplishments. Why? Because we need to remember that all fullness is found in him. Remember the Christians in Colossae are being tempted to seek fullness in spiritual experiences and not in Christ alone. Paul knows that these spiritual experiences, which are detached from the true Christ, which are detached from the objective word of God, that these spiritual experiences that people are experiencing are influenced by demonic powers, rulers and authorities. Okay, Paul would not negate that people can't have real, feel-good, spiritual experiences that are detached from Christ. In fact, he expects that. 
These are very real spiritual experiences, but Paul knows that their source is not Christ, but spiritual rulers and authorities. The point that Paul is making is that seeking meaning and purpose in your life there and your constant ongoing feelings and experiences, what feels good, what feels right, what feels true, feels good, is good, this sort of epistemology that rules our day, Seeking that is just to be controlled by demonic powers who are manipulating you for the purposes of Satan. They're manipulating your sinful flesh. Yes, it feels good, but it's not true. It's not good because it's not rooted in Christ. So the point Paul's making is that you shouldn't seek spiritual experiences anywhere except in Christ alone. And we know Christ alone through the words that he has given to us alone. So that's what you need to endure. He's also basically saying, why are you trying to play on the losing team, Christians? Why are you letting your life be ruled by what feels good and experiences and things like that in your daily life. This is a call to a Christian church, friends. This is a call to remember that there's going to be all sorts of things in this world that will distract us from meditating on and being involved in Christ and all the means of grace that he has provided that we would know him more. Everything you do in the Christian life is going to seem harder than the contrary. Because Satan always wants to tempt to lead you toward this sort of self-fulfillment, self-sufficiency, self-reliance. Okay, so, so he's going to tell you, it's better to sleep in on Sundays. He's going to tell you, it's better to hang out alone at home, watching Netflix, than to be with a brother or sister in Christ, spending some time together for mutual encouragement. Okay, he's going to tell you that you ought to be at a church that makes you feel good every Sunday. And suddenly this preaching from the word of God that cuts to my heart and makes me feel guilty, it's not feeling so good, so maybe I should go somewhere else. That's the point that Paul's trying to make. Seeking after feel-good spiritual experiences is the source of demonic influence. So don't play on that team. Play on the team of those who say Christ is all. Christ is everything. Christ is center. Okay, the, the imagery that Paul has here when he's talking about Jesus has triumphed over these rulers and authorities, the image, imagery in the Greek comes out of a Greco-Roman practice, which was to march the losing army and their generals down Main Street in Rome, often stripped naked as a spectacle to all of the people in the city of their triumph over their enemies. And, it, and often it was actually a death march. When Rome would triumph over an enemy, they would march the generals all the way down to front and center in front of everybody, and that's where they would put them to death. This was a shameful thing. It was a thing that was embarrassing. It was meant to put on display how weak, how pathetic, how small all of the enemies of Rome, in fact, were. It was meant for their humiliation. So, so Rome wanted everybody in the city to know how foolish it is to side with the army that has just been radically and easily demolished. 
Okay, Paul is saying that about Satan and all of his little minions. In the cross and in the resurrection, Satan and the powers of darkness were put to open shame. And the imagery is that they are being marched down to death row even now. So why would you subject yourself to them? Why would you try to play on the side that has already definitively lost? Paul's saying Christ is the conqueror. If you want fortitude in full, don't seek after constant subjective experiences. Don't seek it in religion for religion's sake. Seek it in Christ alone. Christ has disarmed all the rulers and authorities. He's disarmed all of the liars. We don't need to seek any other power outside of the power that is found in Christ alone. Now, here's how this connects to your life, my friends. The only power that Satan can try to exercise over you if you're a Christian in Christ is accusations and lies. Okay, so Satan will try to discourage you by getting you to believe that Jesus is not enough. He wants you to think that Jesus hasn't really forgiven you of all of your sins. Okay, maybe Jesus forgave you of some sins, but not that one. He's not forgiving you of that one. I'm going to hold that one over you. Satan loves to accuse. He loves it. Man, he's like the kid who's known as the family tattletale. That's Satan in the courts of heaven. Look how bad they are. Look how terrible they are. And that's what Jesus went, or that's what Satan wants you to begin to believe. That he hasn't forgiven you. He will entrap you, seek to entrap you in that lie. He wants you to believe that you have no hope, no strength, no victory, no power. He wants you to think that you are the one who needs to disarm the rulers and authorities. He wants you to think you're weak, you're lifeless. You can't do that, so you might as well just give up. He wants you in despair. He wants you thinking that you can't go on. And Paul seeks to speak truth to that lie. And the truth is that in Christ, my friends, we have total victory. You have total victory over all of your sin. You have total victory over the powers of darkness. Satan is a liar. He's been defeated. He has no power over the, the saints of the living God. Not so long as our eyes, our attention, our focus, our hearts are meditating upon Christ. We are hidden in him. We have all the wisdom that we need in him. We have all the forgiveness that we need in him. We have all of the life that we need in him. We have spiritual power in Christ. And thus we don't need anything but Jesus. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. All you need is Jesus. He's the reason everything exists. And he's the reason that everything will be made new. He is our eternal hope. And so in him, we're made full, my friends. So if you're feeling maybe just a little spiritually hungry this morning, can I remind you that if you're in Christ, you have been filled. May God keep us in that truth today. Let's pray. Before I pray, just as everybody's eyes are closed and your heads are bowed, I just want to encourage anyone this morning who has not placed their faith in Christ and thus been baptized into him to do that at this moment. It's not rocket science, friends, to receive Christ. 
Um, you just pray to receive him. You, you cast yourself on him. You trust him for all that you need. You pray that these things that we've preached about today would become a true reality for you. And you begin to walk in him. So I just want to encourage you, if that's you, do, it, do that even at this moment. Just in the quietness of your own heart, pray to receive Christ. And I would encourage you, if you're doing that, don't leave here today without talking to me, or Pastor Russ, or another believer around you. Just let them know, I, I just need to talk more about this. I need to know more about this. And pray, Father... We thank you for all that we have in Christ, which is all. We have everything in him. And I do pray that every heart in this room would be circumcised. That you would grant new life. That people would respond and that through faith they would be baptized into Jesus and know the fullness that comes in him alone. Lord, I pray for the weak and struggling Christian, which is all of us at various times. Lord, fill us afresh with the knowledge of Christ and all the fullness that we already have in him. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.